Amen. Turn in your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 26. Last week we resumed, um, after many months of break, we resumed our study through the Gospel of Matthew, and we're in this last section, Matthew chapters 26 through 28. Um, and I, you know, if I, I'm calling that last section, this last section of Matthew, the, the, the sovereign, see, the suffering and the sovereignty of Christ, because we're going to see both those themes just intertwined throughout these last chapters. I want us to be reminded of how Christ has suffered for us, what he did to secure our salvation, but we're going to see throughout it, and, and today as well, that he is no helpless victim. He, he ha- is willingly going toward the cross. He is, um, as he says in John 10, no one takes his life from him. He lays it down on his own accord. And so we're going to see those truths come out in the text today. And so the, we're going to be, begin in verse 17 of Matthew 26. And I entitled the sermon this morning, Powerfully Carrying Out God's Plan. That's what we're going to see Jesus doing today, powerfully carrying out God's plan. And as we begin here in verse 17 of Matthew 26, just to get it, give your uh, reference to you, we're about 24 hours away, or really less, from the cross. So a lot of things are about to happen as we move toward Calvary. But again, I want us to see that Jesus is in complete control. Nothing's going to take him by surprise. Again, he's not a helpless victim. He knows the plan that he, the Father, and the Holy Spirit have agreed upon before the foundation of the world. The plan that says that he should die on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for his people. And Jesus knows then the path that lays before him. And today we're going to see him sovereignly um, indicating that path and orchestrating the unfolding events of that path, all in fulfillment of God's word. So let's begin by looking at verse 17 then. Matthew 26, verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. So, again, I mentioned this last week, but the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover were kind of combined. The the festival lasted seven days and was kicked off by celebrating the Passover meal. So if you're trying to track where we are in the week, we're at Thursday. So probably like Thursday afternoon-ish or midday, Jesus sends... Um, a couple of his disciples, Mark tells us it was a couple, two disciples, into Jerusalem to a certain man who would provide a furnished room where they all together can celebrate the Passover. Notice when Jesus tells the disciple what, what he tells the disciples to say to this man. Tell him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. That's, a, that's an important phrase there. My time is at hand. The word time there is the Greek word uh, kairos. Uh, Greek has a different word when it's just talking about minutes of the day, right? 
But kairos usually refers to a, a special time, an appointed time, a time for the fulfillment of a predetermined plan. And so Jesus is saying, my time has come, or it's at hand, we're, we're, we're nearing it, right? That what's, what's been laid out by the Father, that time is upon us, and tell the, tell the guy there that, um, and he'll provide you with this room. So, that, that man, that host, uh, likely he nor the disciples caught the significance of what Jesus was saying in that statement. But we, I want us to understand Jesus is saying, my time for going to the cross according to God's plan has come. That's what he's saying. Look at verse 20 then. When it was evening... He reclined at table with the twelve. So now we've come to Thursday evening. Jesus and the disciples are partaking of the Passover meal. And again, this, this was a, a, a joy, joyous occasion for, for the Jews. Uh, this was a meal where they celebrated God's delivering Israel from the Egyptians all those years ago. How God, with a mighty hand, drove out the uh, Egyptians. And, and I guess we could say drove out the Israelites from bondage. Uh, to the Egyptians, right, with all the plagues and then the parting of the Red Sea and how it crashed down on the Egyptian army. So this was them celebrating that mighty deliverance of God. But as we look here at Matthew 26, we need to understand that as Jesus and his disciples celebrate this Passover meal, this is the last meal that Jesus will share with his disciples before his crucifixion. And again, it's not just any meal, it's the Passover feast, and this, that right there shows God's plan at work. According to God's perfect timing, Jesus was going to lay down his life on the cross during this time when Israel is celebrating God's deliverance from slavery in Egypt. Now Jesus is going to, through his sacrifice, deliver his people from uh, an even more uh, oppressive bondage, right? The bondage to sin and death and Satan. So it's the perfect time to celebrate uh, what Jesus is about to do, and we're, that's why we're going to see him inaugurate the, or institute, I should say, the Lord's Supper at this time. So again, this is a very intimate uh, setting. This is a joyful setting. It's a very intimate setting. Sharing a meal together in their culture, especially a meal like the Passover, was a very intimate thing. So here, when we're picturing in our mind's eye Jesus and his disciples, it's kind of like a family gathered together, Right? It's like a family gathered together around the Passover meal with Jesus serving as the head of the family. And I say all that to say what, he, what Jesus now says in the next verse created quite a shock. Verse 21, as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Think about that. They're all gathered together like a family around this meal, celebrating God's goodness, celebrating God's deliverance. And then Jesus just, you know, throws, throws a real monkey wrench in it, I guess you'd say, and says, hey, one of you is going to betray me. Jesus, and what I want us to see here right off the bat is Jesus knows, right? We learned about this last week that Judas had, had met with the, the religious leaders, right? The, those who hated Jesus and wanted him dead. Judas had met with them and they paid him 30 pieces of silver so that he could... At an opportune time, hand over Jesus. They want it to be after the, the Passover festival, right? Because they don't want to stir up the crowds. So all that, you know, looks like it's happening behind the scenes kind of 
you know, in the cloak of darkness, but Jesus knows. He's well aware of what's happening. He knows of the betrayal. He knows, no doubt, the identity of his betrayer, even though here in verse 21 he doesn't come out and say that it's Judas. So Jesus announces this to the twelve. He says, one of you, one of you twelve disciples, one of you with whom I've just shared my life with these, these last three years, one of you who's sitting with me together at this table for this special Passover meal is going to betray me. So that shows the sovereignty of Christ, right? Imagine what Judas' reaction was to this, you know? He hasn't told a soul. This is something he's been conniving uh, himself, and then he hears this. I'm sure, you know, he started looking around wondering if anybody else knew, right? Well, Jesus knows what's in Judas' heart. He knows that Judas is looking for a time to hand Christ over. Understandably, Christ's statement here was quite a shock to the rest of the disciples, right? Look at verse 22, their response. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? So when Jesus announces the betrayal, the disciples are are sad and they're shocked and, and they immediately... Uh, actually start doing some soul searching you know they're thinking like wow is there something in my heart that's gonna uh, you know commit this involuntary act of betrayal and so in sorrow they one by one ask Jesus is it I Lord and in the Greek we know their question expects a negative answer so it's like they're saying surely it's not I Lord surely not me Lord again it's interesting they're they're not pointing fingers and no one is suspecting Judas at this point so it kind of shows you just how um, deceitful Judas was being. He, he was being very um, undercover about this, right? Jesus answers, <laughs> verse 23, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. You say, wow, that's kind of a, a, a weird way of answering, right? Well, Jesus is pointing to scripture here. Dipped his hand in the dish with me describes someone who has shared a meal with Jesus. Right, So that right there doesn't necessarily narrow it down because he's already said, one of you will betray me and they're all sharing the meal together. Right, But Jesus is, for one, emphasizing, again, just the heinousness of this betrayal. This is someone I trusted, you know, especially in their culture and probably in ours to a degree as well. Right, Sharing a meal with somebody was a very intimate thing. You know, I mean, someone that you're seated around the table with, someone that you're breaking bread with, those are people that you would consider your friends probably. Someone you trust, right? So Jesus is highlighting the heinousness of the betrayal. But like I said, he's also echoing scripture. Psalm 41.9. You want to jot that down. Psalm 41.9. That's a psalm of David. And let me read for you verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. You, you see, David was dealing with his own sort of betrayal that was happening to him, right? And you can hear the pain in David's voice. You know, we, we look at David's life, he had many enemies, right? He was used to enemies doing all kinds of things against him, plotting against him. But here in verse 9 of Psalm 41, he says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, he's now against me. He's betraying me. And so Jesus is saying, I'm I'm living that out now as well among you all. Judas was one of Jesus' disciples. He was one of the 12 that Jesus had personally 
chosen to be with him and live with him. Again, Jesus had shared his life with Judas over these past three years. Think of all the time they had spent together, all the the love and and teaching that Jesus had poured into into Judas' life, and now Judas is, is betraying him. And Jesus says, I'm fulfilling Psalm 41. I'm being betrayed by a close friend here. I'm suffering as an innocent one, by the way. Psalm 41 highlights that as well, the innocence of this, right? I don't deserve this. This is evil. This is a betrayal. And so that's the specific verse he echoes. But it's, it's interesting, by the way, this happens oftentimes when the New Testament uses something from the Old. When you look at the context of, of that Old Testament quote as well, it, it, it sheds further light on it. And that's the case here in Psalm 41 as well. Jesus, no doubt, was thinking about the way the psalm continued. Because verse 9 talks about, okay, my close friend who I broke bread with, he's lifted up his heel against me. But then the very next verse, and then verses following, expresses a confidence in the Lord. And and knowing the Lord will ultimately vindicate him. Listen to Psalm 41.10, the very next verse. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. So see, Psalm 41 expresses this confidence in God, knowing that God is in control. Yes, the psalmist is being betrayed by a close friend, but he knows that God is in control of that circumstance, of that grievous sin, and that in the end, God is going to vindicate him. So no doubt Jesus is drawing encouragement from that. He's, He's thinking the same thing, the same truth, right? Yes, I'm suffering innocently. Yes, a close friend, a, a, a disciple is betraying me, which is going to result in my death. But I know this is part of God's plan. God has not forsaken me. God will raise me up again. God is in control. And that's exactly, of course, what we're going to see happen in Jesus' life. He will be vindicated. He will be raised from the dead. And so all of that then, right, Now we're up to verse 24. It leads Jesus to say this in verse 24 of Matthew 26. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. So again, Jesus is highlighting, hey guys, what what all this that's taking place, I know I'm rocking your world with these statements and, and, and there's more to come, but all of this is according to God's word. It's according to God's plan. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Behind Judas's sin, behind his betrayal, is a divine purpose that's being carried out. In all of this, the scriptures are being fulfilled. And here in verse 24, Jesus doesn't reference a specific Old Testament um, scripture, but he's alluding to many of the prophecies of the suffering servant. If you specifically, we could say in, from Isaiah 42 to 53, right? Those, those prophecies that talk about the, how the servant of the Lord is going to suffer at the hands of sinful men, but how God is accomplishing his purposes through that. And so he's, uh, again, teaching and preparing the disciples for what is taking place. 
Judas' betrayal is heinous, but it's all part of the sufferings that the Old Testament said that the Christ, the Messiah, the promised king would have to experience. And so again, Jesus is doing this to, I think, encourage the disciples to help ex- explain things to them as they process this and as they in the later look back on it and process it. Yes, right now they're confused. The disciples are. They're in a panic, no doubt. What, what, do, you, what do you mean betrayal? Who is it? Is it I, Lord? You know, what's going on? But he's telling them, guys, things are not out of control. Everything is happening according to God's ordained plan. What is that plan? To glorify his name through the redemptive suffering of his son, of his Messiah. Okay? So... All this talk about, well, this is all according to God's plan, that may raise the question, well, then is Judas, is he even responsible for this, right? Uh, You know, if if this betrayal is part of the sovereign purpose of God, should Judas be held accountable for his actions? Well, Jesus addresses that also in verse 24. It starts off again, the Son of Man goes as, as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So Jesus says, yes, scriptures are being fulfilled, but don't think that means that the betrayer is not going to be punished severely. I mean, he says, woe to that man. Woe is a terrifying term, right? It's a term of speaking of God's judgment. It's, it's talking, it's a warning. It's, it's really, it's language of, of damnation. So this is like a warning about hell. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So Jesus says something horrifying awaits Judas Something so bad that it would have been better for Judas if he had never been born. He's going to be punished for eternity. And we know that's what hell is, right? It's a place of everlasting punishment. A place that uh, all sinners go to. Apart from the saving work of Christ. So that, that is the fate that awaited Judas... Just like it awaits every person who does not place their faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. So if you picture that scene then. Jesus was, he, he's instructing the disciples. Um, in a way it's like he's kind of warning Judas. But Jesus is also carrying out God's plan here. He's moving things along. He's telling Judas, hey, I know what you're doing, and you're responsible for it. Judas, you're not a helpless victim here. You're doing exactly what you want to do. And that's what we need to understand when we think about Judas's role. And He's doing exactly what was in his heart to do. Judas had decided in his heart to betray Jesus. Judas was greedy. Judas didn't believe in, in Jesus, the Messiah he was turning out to be. And so Judas made the decision he made. We know God is a just judge. God would not punish Judas if if Judas were not a willing participant in that sin. And the fact is he is willing. He's choosing to do this. And so again, that's something that we we say often probably. The Bible teaches 
uh, two truths simultaneously, right? God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And we see that in the life of, of Judas. And, and it's instructive for us, obviously, Judas is, you know, um, a special case in the fact that we're talking about the betrayal of the, of the Messiah here. But when, whenever anyone sins, they're responsible, right? We can't say, you know, oh, well, the devil made me do it. Or we can't, you know, get super theological here and say, well, God has foreordained for this sin to happen. So, you know, I guess I'm just kind of, <laughs> you know, uh, innocent in it. No, no, no. The Bible makes it very clear. When we sin, we are responsible. And God, God holds us responsible. And again, that's why we need a Savior. Because we, we need our sins paid for by Jesus. So interesting, right? We've, we've heard all the other di- disciples go up to Jesus and say, Is it I, Lord? Right? Well, verse 25 shows Judas going up to Jesus. Judas, who would betray him, verse 25, answered, Is it I, Rabbi, notice Judas doesn't call him master, Judas doesn't call him Lord, he calls him rabbi, just teacher, right? Judas has not trusted in in Christ, as we would say in our vernacular, right? He's not believing that Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus answered, or says, he said to him, you have said so. Jesus' response to Judas is in an affirmative. Yes, it's just as you have said. So it's a pretty dramatic scene, right? And matter of fact, at this point, um, I believe it's John's gospel says, you know, uh, I think Jesus says, what, what you're about to do, do quickly. And Judas gets up and leaves, Right? So now, um, that leaves Jesus with the 11, and what I want us to see, by the way, and we're going to see this throughout in the weeks to come to, in his arrest, in his crucifixion, (laughs) Jesus is the one actually moving the ball forward down the field here, right? So again, he's not a victim. (laughs) He's the one willingly carrying out God's purposes and plan. I mean, really, Jesus, in in this scene here before us, he's the... By him saying, hey, one of you is going to betray me, he's the one that actually has kind of instigated this, the timing of it, I'm saying, right now. He's the one that, that has, um, uh, what would we say, is advancing his arrest and crucifixion right now. Judas was just looking for a, the right time, but now that Jesus has, you know, brought all this out, well, now it, you know, Judas is kind of forced to, okay, I've got to do this now, Right? So now Jesus is with the 11, and as they continue eating, Jesus uses the Passover meal then, right? They're still eating a Passover meal, but Jesus uses this occasion now to, to teach about his death, what, the significance of his death. He's already told the, the disciples, you know, several times, hey, I'm, when I go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to rise again, but he really hasn't explained to them why this was all happening. And so now he's going to use uh, this occasion to teach them about the, what his death would accomplish and to establish a, a new meal, a new meal of remembrance, a way for them to remember these truths. Look at verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, 
And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Verse 27. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So again, I mean, the, the disciples, you know, they're, they've, they've no doubt sat through many, many Passover meals, and now, you know, things are just, oh, the routine has totally been broken here. Right? In the middle of celebrating the Passover, Jesus is changing things up. Rather than continuing on with the normal routine of the Passover, he's instituting this new celebration, this new meal of remembrance that we call the Lord's Supper. Jesus takes the unleavened bread for the Passover meal and he redefines it. He gives it a new symbolic meaning. Now he says that bread is going to represent his body which is being given for them. Those are important phrases, aren't they? This is, take, eat, this is my body. And then he's going to say, um, this is poured out for many. When he talks about his blood, right? So according to the Father's plan, Jesus is going to voluntarily lay down his life on the cross for his people. His death is going to be a, a, a substitutionary atonement. In other words, he's going to be dying in the place of his people, paying the penalties, the penalty for their sins in order to make them right with God, in order to atone their sins, in order to cover those sins up and, and, and um, satisfy God's wrath against those sins. So he's going to die as their substitute, paying that penalty for their sins in order to make them right with God. And that's what he is teaching with the cup as well. In verse 27, he takes this cup that was originally part of the Passover meal. In the Passover, there were four different cups. And scholars have landed on. They figured out they think this was probably the third cup, which was the cup of redemption. And again, Jesus redefines it. He gives it new symbolic meaning. He says this cup now represents his blood that will be shed on the cross for his people. Substitutionary. His blood is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So that is a fundamental truth, isn't it, when we think about Christ's death? That it was, it was for us. It was in our place. In our place condemned he stood. Right? And, and again, this, is a, this should be a, a, a glorious truth that we rejoice in if we're in Christ today. That if you're in Christ, you know that your penalty has been paid. Jesus Christ has paid your penalty. He has died in your place under the wrath of God. He's endured the wrath of God against your sins so that you never will. Jesus has willingly died as your substitute. And so that's the good news of the gospel, right? And that's what needs to be celebrated and remembered. And that's what Jesus is, is instituting here. Notice when he, in verse 26, he called the cup, or excuse me, verse 28, he called the cup, my blood of the covenant. My blood of the covenant. He's teaching his disciples that something new is happening, guys. My death is is inaugurating a new covenant, a new relationship between God and his people that we call the new covenant, right? 
And, and they would have been familiar with, with this idea of, of blood and covenants because in the Bible what we see is covenants are always ratified, they're always established with blood. They're put in place with blood to show how serious and binding this covenant is. So, for example, when God made a covenant with Abram back in Genesis 15, God, in the form of a flaming torch, passed through animals cut in half. Right? So that covenant was ratified with blood. In Exodus 24, when Israel entered into a covenant with God, Moses sprinkled the altar and the people with blood of, of sacrificed oxen. Again, that covenant was established with blood. And now here as the disciples celebrate the Passover with Jesus in Matthew 26, they are still currently under the Mosaic covenant, but the prophets had spoke of another covenant to come, of a new covenant. Jeremiah specifically had, had talked about a covenant that God would one day make with his people in Jeremiah 31. A covenant where, where God's law would not be written on tablets of stone, but God's law would be written on the hearts of his people. A covenant in which the people would no longer need to exhort one another within that covenant, hey, know the Lord, because everybody in that covenant would truly and personally know God. They'd, be, they'd have new hearts. A covenant where God would once and for all forgive their sins, like we heard in Hebrews. They wouldn't need to keep offering animal sacrifices again and again just to kind of hold God's wrath at bay. No, in this covenant, there would, be, there, there would have been one sacrifice offered once and for all, a perfect sacrifice. God's wrath will have been satisfied once and for all. Their sins will have been cleansed completely by the, by the offering of the, the ultimate sacrifice, Christ himself. So that's in Jeremiah 31 that it speaks of that. Ezekiel talks about it as well. But Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm establishing that new covenant with my death on the cross. He, he's saying the time for the new covenant has come. Christ's sacrifice on the cross is going to inaugurate that new covenant. And something else that's going to be uh, different about this covenant is now, this, now God's covenant is no longer going to be just with one nation like the Mosaic covenant was with just the nation of Israel, right? Now the new covenant is not with a particular nation but with people from every nation. Anyone and everyone who turns from their sins and by faith embraces Jesus as Lord and Savior is part of that new covenant then. And that's what we're going to see, right? After the resurrection and the sending of the Spirit as is, is the gospel go forth to, to, um, in, in the book of Acts. It, it just starts spreading, right? To the Gentiles and, and the uttermost parts of the world. So again, this reminds us now as Christians in the 20, what, first century. Hey, we're part of the new covenant, Christ, we're, we're, we get to enjoy the blessings of that covenant. Christ established this new covenant with the, his death on the cross. And now, by God's grace, we've trusted in Christ. And so we are enjoying those blessings. We are part of this new covenant. We know that our sins are forgiven, that our, our guilt is gone. We, we actually know the Lord. We, we have hearts that, yes, still struggle with sin, but we do have hearts that love God. And want to know him more, want to please him, want to bring glory to him. And so what, what joy that should give us, what peace we should have 
And again, of course, obviously we're thinking about the Lord's Supper. We celebrated it last week. Um, but the Lord's Supper is just a reminder of all these blessings, right? Whenever we take the Lord's Supper, we're reminded, my guilt is gone. I, there's no condemnation for me now in Christ Jesus. My sins have been paid for. I am in an eternal covenant with God. He will never leave me or forsake me. He's my Father. He loves me. And I will one day be with Him forever in glory. These are all blessings that are ours because of Christ. And again, if, you, if you're without Christ, you don't, you don't know those blessings. You don't have the peace of forgiveness of sins, but you can. If you will turn from your sins and, and place your, all your hope for eternal life, all your hope for being made right with God, if you'll place that in Christ alone. In other words, you're not relying on yourself, well, if I can just be good enough, or if I can just obey my parents enough, or if I can just go to church enough, then maybe, you know, I'll be okay with God. No, if you will just recognize, no, I'm a sinner, and my only hope is Christ. And if you'll trust in him alone, the Bible says you'll be, you'll be forgiven, and you'll be brought into that eternal covenant, into the eternal kingdom of God. And so, again, this was radical, what Jesus was doing here, right? I mean, he's preparing them for his death, and he's, he's displaying such authority and by, by just <laughs> transforming the Passover, <laughs> right? He's taking the elements of the Passover, and instead now, instead of them referring to the Exodus, he's saying, hey, you know what, I'm going to give new meanings to these things, new symbolism to these things. I'm redefining what the central event is for the people of God. Yes, God's deliverance from Israel, that was great, but that was all pointing toward what I'm about to do. Now the central event for the people of God is going to be my uh, death and resurrection. Because that is where sins will be paid for once and for all, and God, all God's people will, will be made right with, with him through faith in Christ. So he concludes uh, this scene here in verse 29. He says, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the, the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So we've got a lot of feasts going on here, right? We've got the Passover feast, and from that Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, and now he's, he's pointing them toward another feast in the future. The, the final messianic banquet in the age to come. The marriage supper of the Lamb as Revelation says that that great time when Christ returns, the risen Lord Jesus Christ returns, when the dead are raised and all of his redeemed, all, all believers, his bride, are gathered to him in, in perfect glorified bodies, no more sin in their hearts, and they enjoy fellowship with him. That's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. You can read about that in Revelation 19. This great banquet where all the redeemed are celebrating with Jesus together in the eternal, completed kingdom. No more sin, no more struggle, no more betrayal, no more enemies. They've all been dealt with. It's just us as believers with the Lord in glory. And that's what he's pointing toward there in verse 29 where he says, I will not drink again of the, this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So I think that's 
that's again encouraging the disciples. It's, it gives us insight into how Jesus is thinking as he's facing what he's about to face, right? In, in, in obedience, he's, he's willingly headed toward the cross, but he's already uh, kind of looking past that impending suffering and death to what his death is going to accomplish. The forgiveness of sins, the, the redemption of all of God's people, all those who've been entrusted to me, who've been given to me by the Father, I'm saving now by the, through the suffering that I'm about to do. And one day we'll all be gathered together and get to celebrate together. Like it says in uh, Hebrews, right? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. So Christ anticipates that great meal that he'll enjoy with his people, that great time of fellowship that will never end with his people at the end of the age. And then verse 30 says, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. <laughs> uh, the Passover meal often concluded with a, a hymn. Matter of fact, the custom was to use uh, some of the Psalms there within uh, Psalm 113 to 118. So they likely were singing one of those. And they go out to the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem where Jesus is going to make another sober um, declaration. And I decided to it, it continues with this theme of, of Jesus fulfilling scripture, but I decide to hold off and we'll, we'll cover that next week as we look at the garden and we see the, his Christ declaration and the fulfillment of that take place. But what I want us to see that as we close this morning is, again, that Jesus is in complete control. He knows the pain and suffering that he's about to face and he has embraced God's plan. And he's powerfully carrying out God's plan in fulfillment of scripture. So I, I hope you are reminded today what a powerful and loving savior is Jesus Christ our Lord. He did this willingly. For the glory of his father and out of love for each of his people. And so let's stand together. We're going to give praise to to our Savior, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, with grateful hearts.